Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we call paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. <laughs> I know why that always makes me laugh. Yeah. Which really, <laughs> but it was true back then. <laughs> right. Which really means we just like sticking sticks in anthills and watching all the ants scurry and readjust to their new reality, their new status quo. Yes, and we're still kind of doing that, you know? <laughs> we'll get to that, maybe. So as we mentioned, the reason for this podcast is twofold. For one, the Hill Homeless Encampment, located at the plot of land that is today called Forsyth Plaza, it's a park, a beautifully landscaped park. Landscape beautifully bricked, you mean? No. No, there's some landscape. Yeah, okay. there's quite All a right. bit of landscaping. It's, a, right. it's, a, it's an actual park now where right. people hang. Um, yeah. But it, it existed for many years and was known as The Hill. And it's part of New York history. And that story needs to be told. And we're the only ones who can tell it. But the second reason is we want to figure out after all these years how the darkness and violence at the end of this story crept up suddenly uh, without our noticing it. And we want to fully come to terms with that and what our responsibility for it all is. We'll explore some of it in this episode, but in retrospect, I see the first clue uh, five days after we put up the teepee. When I wrote in my journal, quote, the fire department down the street brought everyone pepper steak. Uh, by the way, the fire department was wonderful. You know, they had to put out so many fires on the hill, but they were very nice people. Um, yeah, they brought pepper steak and they brought food all the time that they had left over. Then a half hour later, two young white caterers in chef uniforms brought a huge ham and asked to see the teepee. And one of them had read Laubin's book, the book that I used as a template to build the teepee and where I also got the spelling, T-I-P-I, from that book. And they were quite knowledgeable about teepees. And I thought it was really courageous of the two of them to walk onto the hill like that so simply. But is that a good thing or a bad thing, I wrote. The teepee serves as a bridge, great, but it also exposes the hill like never before. Uh, yeah, and those visitors were just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, eventually school groups came in with their teachers, filmmakers came, and celebrities. And then tour box buses actually stopped at the corner of Canal and Christie. Yeah, the gray line. <laughs> right. And, and, of course, there was continually press coverage, which we tried our best to control, and I guess with some success, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we'll get into that, too. We want to continue today, though, telling you about the core group of residents that were there when we first arrived at the Hill. Uh, many of them were still there when it all kind of went south. Uh, but by that point, they were no longer the primary players 
and uh, you know the cast of characters in that community changed tremendously. Yeah, last time we told you about the brothers, Eddie and Billy, Mike and Donald, and about Billy Toyota. Uh, today we'll introduce you to um, Jimmy and Larry and Elaine. But we also want to start telling their stories. In other words, not just give an introduction. And of course, we want to start telling the story, the story of the hill itself, right. the hill at large. We'll start with Chinese Jimmy, as he was called. He lived in a hut that was, um, it was covered with an orange, bright orange tarp. And it had one little tiny window carved out of it. <laughs> Unlike the others, he right. carved a little window. Right. We once had the idea to have Jimmy take clandestine pictures of people coming up taking pictures. So we thought of him almost like, um, well, we, one of the books that brought us up to the hill was Kobo Avi's The Box Man. And it was a project we always th thought of doing. And Jimmy reminded us of the right. box man. And it's largely because of that little window. We thought right. it was so perfect right. that, that there's a, a man in there and nobody really knows him and right. he's clandestinely snapping pictures right. of people. When I was researching Jimmy in my journal, I saw that he and Ali were kind of running partners. One night, Ali's hut went up in flames, but he was in Jimmy's hut when it happened. And... When Ali got arrested, it was Jimmy who told us that he would be gone for a while because they were trying to charge him with various different crimes. So this all came from Jimmy. And the two of them really exploited Juan. And I didn't remember any of this until I went combing through my journal because they used Juan to, for instance, be the lookout and to score drugs for them. And I ran across a section in the journal where apparently we had a long talk with Juan, telling him he was smart, not stupid, for saying no to them, that they had no right to put him in danger like that, and that he didn't need to do it because he was all in distress that Jimmy and Ali were trying to make him do all this stuff, and he didn't really want to. So any case, it just shows you how memory fails you. I, I didn't remember any of that about Ali, and I guess he used drugs a lot more than I remember yeah, as well. Yeah, right. Memory is tricky. I mean, you remember, you remember things one way, I remember things another way, and your journal will often contradict both of us. Right. <laughs> so... Um, and, of course, some things are blocked by trauma or whatever happens to you, you know. I, there's a Hemingway quote. I, I, I'll sort of paraphrase it uh, that stuck with me when I was starting to rewrite or write the story of the hill. He said, good writing is true writing. If a man is making a story up, it'll be true in the proportion to how conscientious he is. Actually, I better read it. <laughs> Good writing is true writing. If a man is making a story up, it will be true in proportion to the amount of knowledge of life that he has and how conscientious he is. So that when he makes something up, it is as it would be, truly be. In other words, truer than true. Yes. Complete truth. Right. So when I began writing the memoir of the hill, I realized that neither my memory, Gabrielle's memory, or her journal had the 
truth. Quote, unquote. Right, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as the courtroom saying says. So I began classifying and writing what I'm now calling an autofiction of the hill. Right, autofiction meaning that you have snippets of memory and you fill in the rest. Right. For instance, I only have flashing memories of Jimmy. He, di- he didn't real, loom real large on the hill, but he was, you know, is a nice guy and very unassuming. A few days after we put up the teepee, I hung out on the hill and I was dancing and singing on the radio with him. I remember you telling me that. <laughs> yeah, and with a, another young black girl. And maybe a week later, Jimmy came up to me all depressed, saying that that girl had died of a stroke, you know. I remember that, but what the memory that looms most is me watching him walking down the street, Canal Street, right next to another Asian man, and they were walking pretty quick, and Jimmy was talking nonstop. And then finally they both stopped, and the man reached into his pocket and gave Jimmy a roll of bills. And I could conjecture from that what was going on. Jimmy was extorting money from illegal immigrants, you know, all of them just working their shit jobs in Chinatown, and he was extorting money from them. And you conjectured that because a lot of that was happening in Chinatown, um, you know, including right. with the collusion of the cops, by the way, which we'll also get into. Right. Yeah, they were they were known they were known for that when that corruption scandal came down. The fifth precinct was. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. yeah, they were extorting money from from business owners, but in any case, so you know. Jimmy, it was a nice guy, like so many people were nice guys, no, and then a, not so much, right? Right. I know, he was a criminal exploiting. But uh, the whole time we were on the hill, I was regularly visiting the Central Library and the local Chinese library in Chinatown there. And um, it was all trying to complete what I was trying to pursue in my head at the time and reflecting on, which was a mindset centered on geomancy, seeing how the land spoke to the hill and its history. So how the ghost of its history of the earth kept rising up and speaking. And I continue that research even after, you know, now, even now I'm continuing looking at it. And from that, it filled and completed in my mind and my memory, the picture of Jimmy. And it's confused with probably this 20 year old something Chinese Jimmy with the history of so many Chinese Jimmies at that time. Um, yeah. Well, you know, Jimmy was thought to be Chinese mob connected to one of the Asian gangs, right? right. And I mean, he was, I, know, I remember he was arrested for assault and disappeared for three days. And word had it that he, uh, his bail was set at $10,000 and he got out because of his connections. Right, right. I'll read a section of the autofiction that tells the history of Chinatown that preceded the Chinatown on the hill, but still continue to be part of the present day crime and politics and the authority that still functioned and ruled the land. Right, yeah. Tong Wars. By 1900, 7,000 Chinese had immigrated to the neighborhood, and Five Points was referred to as Chinatown. The Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 had halted legal immigration from outside of America. It was a reaction to anti-Chinese sentiment stemming from resentment 
about the willingness of the Chinese to work for far less money under far worse condition than white laborers. The Tongs served both as guardians against anti-Chinese violence perpetrated against the community and as a political force in the city. The population of Chinatown at the time consisted of approximately one female for every 50 males. Wow. And the Tongs became the main facilitators. Every 50 males? One for every 50. Jeez. And the Tongs became the main facilitators for the illegal importation of women from China. And many of these women were deceived into thinking they were coming to America for marriage, but instead ending up in prostitution. In the 19th and 20th century, the rival Hip Sing Tong and Ong Leong Tong fought over control of business territories that included profitable prostitution, gambling, and opium dens. These vice dens were taxed by the Tongs to pay off the corrupt Tammany-era officials in the government. These notorious turn-of-the-century violent battles became known as the Tong Wars, lasting from 1890s through the 1930s. Their legacy continued through succeeding generations of Chinatown gangs. Today, the Hip Sing descended flag, flying dragons engage in turf wars. Today meaning 1930s? No, no. Oh. Today meaning 1990. When we were there. <laughs> okay. Right. So, you know, in the 1990s, the, the Hip Sing descended flying dragons engaged in turf wars with the On Leong associated ghost shadows and the division street boys. So then the Exclusion Act was law for 60 years. It, was, it wasn't lifted until World War II, and though a small immigration quota was given to China, the population of Chinese grew throughout the 1940s and 50s. When the immigration quota was raised significantly in 1968, Chinese flooded into the country from Hong Kong and the mainland. Chinatown's population exploded, expanding north into Little Italy and east into the Two Bridges neighborhood. So for much of the 20th century, the neighborhood east of the hill, Two Bridges, it was called, was mainly populated by European immigrants. Later, Latin American immigrants moved in, especially Puerto Ricans, joining the already diverse Jewish, Italian, Irish, and Greek population. A significant number of Vietnamese and Burmese Chinese joined the melting pot. In 1980, the neighborhood became the primary destination from immigrants from Fuzhou, Fuzhou, China. They eventually became the majority population, and two bridges became known as New Chinatown or Little Fuzhou. Fuzhou. Fuzhou, right. <laughs> Not Fuzhou. I right. looked it up. Right. <laughs> How you exactly yeah. pronounce it. Anyway, these Fuzhou... <laughs> immigrants became part of the larger Cantonese-dominated Chinese community, but many of them were able, unable to speak Cantonese and had no papers. Their illegal status meant that their only work available to them was serving as sweatshot seamstresses or dishwashers, waiters in restaurants. The estimated 600 sweatshops made Chinatown the clothing manufacturer of the city. Wow. Out of necessity, many of these new immigrants turned to crime. Little Fuzhou became the center of Chinese organized crime in America, rivaling even La Costa Nostra and supposedly taking, o Nostra. 
Cozen. Okay. Sorry, I'm your editor. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and supposedly taking control of heroin smuggling in the country. An estimated 50,000 Chinese now lived in a 40-block radius of Chinatown, giving New York City the largest Chinese population in the Western Hemisphere. But when we arrived at the Hill, Mr. Lee and the geomancer... The chi- who we refer to the Chinese guy in the back. Right. We're the only Chinese of the 15 or so residents. So it was a very peculiar enclave to be centered in the middle of the largest Chinatown in the United States or Western Hemisphere. The hill was a model of diversity. It was as though all the ethnic and racial conflicts throughout history over this small piece of turf had been reconciled, as though all the ghosts of America's original melting pot had joined the living to dance again. White, black, Asian, Hispanic, and Arab, all living and interacting in one with one another in like-mindedness, with a joint concern to protect the one-acre turf that sheltered the enterprises and provided them a home, a community. Although the four brothers, the James Gang, mm-hmm. and their other Jersey white boys were the primary gatekeepers in authority, their rule was more benevolent than Malevolent. Malevolent. Malevolent, thank you. And the kingdom was relatively peaceful. Only when Coco started selling heroin out of Tito's hut did the racial tension, conflict, and ultimately violence begin to emerge. I suspected Coco's drug dealing, besides the obvious unwanted scrutiny it would bring to the hill, might also be tied to the little Fujo gangs that were vying for control of the heroin trade in the city and the country. The geographic midpoint between Little Italy's mafia family to the west and the Chinatown tongs and gangs to the east, the hill was now the center of a nationwide drug war. The mouth of the dragon, as Mel Chen said. As Mel Chen said, right. Right. Yeah, and Coco was working with drug lords, one of the drug lords, who in turn was being supplied by one or the other of the factions. And hierarchy beyond these street-level drug sales was purposely inscrutable, not just to the police, but to the players themselves. No one knew who was who in this war zone. With all the unknowns, my only viable path I saw then toward determining what actions to take or not to take was to lay bare the underlying metaphysics in my daily rituals and geomancy of the landscape. (laughs) I know. Yeah. The landscape definitely spoke. First of all, I think the hill to this day is still the highest point in Manhattan, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's the highest point. Canal Street comes to a point at the top, yeah. and Fort starts going downhill, as well as the Bowery goes downhill yes. from there. Yes, and yeah. there are so many other amazing historical precedents, including how the hill got its name, and we'll get into all of that later. So there's lots more to tell about the history of that little parcel of land going back all the way to Henry Hudson and Collect Pond. Uh, yeah, oh, can of worms we'll get into later. Right. But, you know, the incident about Jimmy that sticks with me the most involved Larry and Elaine. Larry came back to the hill with Elaine one time. Big commotion. Uh, Larry pimped Elaine. He was screaming at her and hitting her. Apparently, she had disappeared with a John, 
And he said, I could have gotten killed trying to find you. And she was crying and begging in the most heart-wrenching way. I will never forget this. I made $30 for us. Now you found me. Now you want to get rid of me? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense over and over again as he's hitting her. It doesn't make sense. And he he kept all the money and was throwing rocks at her and she was sobbing and she finally left like a, a wounded dog, right, who didn't understand what she did wrong. And I wanted to help her so badly, but it was hard to know what to do. You know, it was their world. I was new to the hill. It was their agreement with each other, their kind of script to play out. But I heard Jimmy in the middle of all this, because I was also in the teepee. You know, I heard Jimmy saying, quietly, take it easy. Take it easy, Larry. He was trying. He was trying to intervene. And Elaine, to my mind, is by far the saddest case uh, from the Hill. For a kind of complete picture, I'm just going to read you a sequence of journal entries, which also gives insight into some of the other residents, like Larry and and Asa's darker side too. By the way, which I conveniently don't remember because my interaction with him is so was so wow. different yeah, and he... and it also by the way is going to briefly introduce spencer who is begun gonna later on loom really large right and really signifies a big shift in the hill absolutely right he was the biggest shift so on january 23rd 91 about two months or so after we got there on thanksgiving Later this morning, Larry was beating up in Elaine again. Don't do it, Larry. Please, don't do it, she begged, as though trying to save him from himself. I wish I could describe her voice, her pleas. They were so heart-wrenching, so desperate. They feel, felt like, uh, in the present, they feel like they have all the guilt of the world as their object. She's like Roma B from the Pa Fossbinder play that we did, Trash the City and Death. She need, Fossbinder said she needed the beatings to feel alive, to feel loved. That's what it, that reminded me of. Then on March 17th, I said, Elaine, hi, I'll suck your dick later. First, I want the hit that I paid for. I get another hit. I think she's about 24, Larry, maybe 28. April 3rd. Larry and Ace got into a fistfight today. Of course, Larry was winning when they were pulled apart. Ace is much weaker. It had to do with Elaine somehow. Also, there's a woman staying with Juan, who Larry fucked, which got Elaine screaming. April 7th. Asked Elaine, who it turns out has painted a lot, to draw with me sometime. I was trying to engage her, you know. Well, you got to know her pretty well, yeah. Yeah. Um, April 9th, Elaine brought her mother up to the hill. (laughs) Why, I wrote. Elaine was a mess. High, drunk, whatever, running around barefoot with a bloody nose somebody had given her, hassling people, walking by and driving by there at the stoplight. 
I don't know that I've ever seen anyone more tortured than her. Her mother, an obviously fairly well-off, educated woman, was trying her best to attend to Elaine and not let anything on that might anger her daughter. God only knows their story. May 8th. Talked to Larry for quite a while last night, trying to get a handle on Elaine and her drug problem. She's in pretty bad shape, scared, profoundly wounded by something, no self-esteem whatsoever, violent, self-destructive, and ready to drag everyone down with her if necessary. He said she's trying to find a detox for both of them. He said he's trying to, no, she's trying to find a detox for both of them. Her mother's a criminal lawyer. Stepfather, father, four sisters, all stand-up people, etc., etc. She's the black sheep she said. She's definitely drowning fast, and I have no idea how to help her. June 4th, 91. Larry was arrested, but got out the next day. He has another girl, the black girl that hangs out with Juan sometimes. Now Ace is behaving towards Elaine like he owns her. Mean, feigning hitting her, lording over her, he seems to know only one way to behave towards women, not towards me, but I'm not quite a woman in his mind. June 27th, Larry told me himself that Elaine isn't with him anymore and that she is in jail because she got, quote, a pimp that doesn't watch her back, Larry said. September 23rd, 91, Elaine went into a program on the 17th to honor her mother's birthday. I'm trying to keep in contact in case she can get visitors. Tony's Sue, a different Sue, and I saw her off. She said her goodbyes, and then she hugged us so affectionately that we all cried as we encouraged her never to come back here. She gathered her belongings, got into a cab which Spencer paid for, and we waved as she drove off. October 1st. 91. Haven't heard anything from Elaine. Her mother won't call me back, despite repeated messages. She probably doesn't trust me. I can't blame her. How should she know who I am? Two days later, October 3rd, turns out Elaine never went into detox at all. Sue told me yesterday. No wonder her mother never called me back and Elaine's avoiding me. Have decided I need to be harder with her while still showing faith in her. She's gonna die before she's 30 at this rate. I hope it's not too late already. March 30th, 92. Spencer told wow, me... Wow, that's like how many months later? Yeah. yeah from uh, October 3rd to yeah. March 30th, 92. Yeah, Did, so didn't hear anything. Months. Yeah. You know? Spencer told me that Elaine... So Spencer was in touch with Elaine. So he claims. So he claims. Right. Spencer told me that Elaine went to Mississippi with somebody a few months ago. No one ever called me, neither she nor her mother. She overwhelms me with sadness. I've never known anyone in that kind of pain, and it's hard for me to even talk about it. When I saw her, she usually had makeup and lipstick all over her weathered young face. Her earlobes were torn and infected from ripped-out earrings, and she was pretty strung out and vulgar most of the time. Yet she cared about clothes and purses and different colored lipstick. Sometimes she'd offer me some, dressing up or dressing down like any young girl. Months ago, before the art exhibit, I went with her to her mother and stepfather's apartment in Soho. Oh, God, this was so sad. 
I was trying to get her to paint something for the exhibit. She wanted me to come along to show her parents that she knows, quote, straight people too. We said a tentative, somewhat distrustful hello, you know, to her parents in the apartment. And together they showed me some of Elaine's fairly sophisticated paintings that they had up on their upper middle class educated professional walls. Elaine told me, uh, Elaine told her mother, I own the teepee. So her mom asked me a little about it and what it is that I do. But it all annoyed Elaine immediately. And in a matter of no time, the whole thing turned sour. Elaine started mocking her mother's questions to me, accusing her of never caring or understanding anything. Her mother immediately started crying and screaming back like a woman at the end of her rope, not knowing how to save her own daughter. Her stepfather and I threw an occasional quiet glance at each other, he trying to let me know the obvious that this happens all the time and that he's frustrated too. But everyone was also suspicious of everyone else. Elaine, whose actual name, it turns out, is Elena, ended up stomping out, her mother yelling, kill yourself and get it over with, please. I can't take it anymore. Just kill yourself and get it over with. Hmm. (laughs) And such. And I tried to follow, sort of half apologizing to the parents, but... She ran away somewhere, and I walked back to the hill by myself. Elaine had told me earlier, on the walk to the apartment, that her mother uh, used to pick up cabbies that she brought home to the two of them, and that Elaine would be in another room listening to them have sex. Elaine and I would have casual conversations sometimes, Uh, the kind that any two 90s women might have using psychobabble to self-analyze. I never got even a partially complete picture, only tossed out hints, but it was obvious that there were lots of secrets, lots of scars, and even more guilt between her and her mother. Ultimately, all I remember about her will be her voice, when she was crying and pleading with Larry that day not to send her away. Right. It still moves me to this day. Right. There's nothing I could do to help. Nothing. Except to try to engage her and involve her with her painting and her art projects and, you know, to go with her to her mother's apartment to hopefully act as kind of an intermediary and it immediately went south. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think about relationships and how, I mean, this isn't your, you know, the way movies portray pimp and prostitute was not what we experienced on the Hill. What do you mean? Well, I mean, the people there were just couples engaged in an enterprise together. In other words, Larry didn't have other women that he pimped. They were a couple. And so many of the couples where the women went out and prostituted themselves and the men did other things besides just protect them or exploit them, you know. But the, the, the protection was a big part of it because it was a violent world, both on the hill and especially on the street. Yeah, and everybody looking to make money. Right. To score drug money. Right, I mean, and it's... 
And everybody did what they did for the money. Yeah, and if you get into the psychology, it's not that much different from any couple that's together where you send out one person to do one thing and another person sends out, does another thing and you negotiate who's taking care of what. You know, I, I, it doesn't seem... I mean, you brought up uh, Trash the City and Death where you have this relationship. So as actors, we, we, <laughs> that's what we're supposed to do is try to inhabit the character of who we're playing. So I always was thinking of when I looked at these couples on the hill, how does it relate to me and Gabrielle? How are we similar, you know? And there, there's a lot of parallels, but... Um, well, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean... Well, go, well, yeah, name an, name, name an example. Well, I mean, for instance, if, if we're riding in the car, remember I told you not to start giving... When you get mad at a driver, <laughs> you're, you're riding shotgun, and you're giving a, a driver the finger or yelling at him or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Nick would always tell me, quit doing that. When we pull over at the stoplight and they get out of their car, it's not you they're going to beat up. It's me. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, that's one instance. Yeah, but that's not an instance of no or another. You know. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's like when we were looking for apartments in New York or something. I'd send you to the real estate agent, or no, to the superintendent of a building to get. See, to, oh yeah, to get to know them because I presented a more uh, sort of. Um, no, you were female, and the story, and the superintendent was male. And yeah. I'm thinking in my head, well, maybe he thinks he's going to... But I was also working in, in an office, and you were doing okay. man with man. Yeah, and, right, right. Well, right. whatever. But yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, so right. it's kind of it, it's kind of a pimping relationship, you're saying, in some no, ways, that you but, use each other to yeah. gain what the common right. yeah. and couple so, needs. And you're living now with uh, pimps and prostitutes, but they're couples. They're not. They're not movie movie pimps and prostitutes. Right. I mean, one time, real. Larry did pick up another girl, and Elaine got really mad. But that's because they, as a couple, broke up. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, exactly. It involves more violence, clearly, and it's sexual. Uh, so I'm not sure it's quite comparable, but. I, I, I know what you're saying. Okay, you're doing that wrestling bitch face. Yeah, I'm not. What am I saying? I'm not saying anything. That You're trying to understand the psychology of others. Yeah. I'm talking about uh, trash the city and death and getting into character. You know, are you going to be a phony person? No, you're going to relate to who you are. I see what you're and saying. And what you are. And you, you, you understand what their relationship is. You understand is. it in the sense and that you're trying to take something from your own world that is comparable so that you can understand a world that yeah. is not yours. and in the end, the world is not much different than yours. It's not much. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's stigmatized in a different way. Selling yourself for sex is stigmatized. Exploiting a woman to sell herself for... You think it's exploiting, but it's not. Right, right, right. Because they were also protecting the women. Even right. as they exploited them. And the women went out all by themselves because it was their way of making a living versus breaking into cars or breaking into, uh, you know, stealing suitcases at the airport yeah. or something. Not that you want to make Larry or other pimps honorable in any way. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm balking against. Yeah, bit, right, right, of course. No, they're scum. You know, they're, they're lazy fucks in my mind, sure. you know. 
and they and Larry, and they're not even that violent you know what i mean they're, they don't do their job or you know if violence is a job they don't do it that well because you can see the times that they there were fights or altercations up there on the hill how they weren't that good at what they were supposed to do right yeah, yeah. whatever let's see all right so the next time we're going to cover the rest of the initial core residents but until then, thanks so much for listening to the Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and to hit that bell so that you know when our next episode is out. And check our website at thievestheater.org, where you can also buy Gabrielle's book. Yes, right there. And sign up, <laughs> sign up to our mailing list. Um, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>